0: Thank you, Tanner. Christ exalting music. Yeah. Just going to turn it off. pray before we get started. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would be exalted. Uh, You know that I cannot do this without you, and I would not want to even if I could. Lord, I pray that that these people here would forget that I ever preached, Lord, but that your word would continue in their hearts and minds. I ask you to help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, I want to say again just what a great honor it is for me to to stand here before you and to open the scriptures um, is one of the, the greatest honors that could be given a man. Of course, it, it seems like never do you feel as inadequate as you do when you stand to preach. You know, not Maybe not so much because I hate public speaking. I absolutely hate it. I loathe it. I, it's the worst. Um, and that's true. But more because of what James says. And that's that anyone who teaches will incur the greater judgment. And then he says, for we all stumble in many ways. Um, So just because a preacher or teacher stands before you to speak about a topic does not mean that he's arrived, okay? R.C. Sproul said this, The more faithful preachers are to the Word of God in their preaching, The more liable they are to the charge of hypocrisy. Why? Because the more faithful people are to the Word of God, the higher the message is that they will preach, and the higher the message, the further they will be from obeying themselves. It's an interesting thought. So today I want to speak about something that I think is, is very important. It's absolutely critical to the church, and that's unity. Of course, there's a lot of different kinds of unity spoken of throughout the Scripture. You've got unity between a man and a woman, the bonds of marriage. You've got spiritual unity between Christ and a believer. You've got unity between the three persons of the Godhead. You've got theological unity, and that's probably what most people think of when they think about church unity, but that one's one's easy. I mean, if, if you don't have theological unity... Get in the Word, read it, find out what the intent of the original authors was, and believe it. And that's it. I mean, whether or not you understand it, whether or not you like it, trust the Word. That would eradicate probably 90% of the differences in the so-called church at large today. Just find out what God wants for His church and stop interjecting your pathetic little 21st century culture and your opinions into God's Word. Bam. Solved it. Problem solved. All right. Thanks. (laughs) But that's not what I want to talk about today. So I want to talk about having a unified mindset because disunity can happen even when everybody believes the same thing. Think about this. Think about this text right here. Philippians 4. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I also ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Now, what do you notice there in those two verses? Number one... They're not living in harmony, right? There's some kind of animosity there. Number two, they're true believers. I mean, look look at that. These women have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Paul doesn't say you need to help these women because they're probably not even believers. He's affirming their testimony, but he wants them to live now in the harmony that we'll all enjoy on that day. And why? Because as the, the previous verses say, Before this, in chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus will transform the state, the body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of his glory. If that's the case, then why not live now in unity, in harmony? Our citizenship is in heaven. It's like Paul said to the centurion in Acts, if you remember, Is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? See, Paul had rights and privileges from being born a Roman citizen. If that's the case for a worldly empire, how much more for the kingdom of heaven? Is it lawful for you, a citizen of heaven, to not live in harmony with another? So I want to go to a passage that's fairly controversial in this day and age. (laughs) But it's extremely helpful and needful and filled with truth for any day and age. Um, But it, it might stretch you depending on on where you come from, where your background is. And that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now, if you know this passage, you know the first seven verses are on marriage. You say, well, what does marriage have to do with unity? <laughs> everything. Absolutely everything, as we're going to see. Now, as I look around the room, I see most of the adults, overwhelming majority of the adults, are either married, have been married, or will be married. Why did God give you your spouse, the particular one that you have? Is it so that he or she could tick all the the boxes that your flesh desires? I'll give you a hint. No. It's so that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. That is the reason for marriage. God made the two one flesh. Right? God has joined you together. You are one. Marriage is, is a picture or a pseudo-explanation, if you could say such a thing of the Trinity. Did you know that? You think about that. Try unity, three in one, right? Three persons, but one God. What is marriage? Two persons in one flesh, right? It's a picture. Marriage is the training ground for unity everywhere. Because in marriage, you can't get away. You're forced to live day in and day out with somebody who is probably the exact polar opposite of you in many ways, and somehow you've got to live as one. If you can live in unity with your spouse, you can live in unity with just about anybody. Well, Kevin, that's easy for you to say. You've got the perfect wife. Touche. Touche. But it's just like Peter said or Jesus said to Peter, what is it to you if John remains alive until I return? You follow me, right? What is it to you if someone else has the perfect spouse? You follow Christ. So let's look at this. Let's look at what the inspired word of God has to say to us. First Peter chapter three, verse one. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, I've, I've quoted this to people before, and they just go absolutely nuts. Just like, just like abortion. Well, what about rape? What about the life of the mother? So immediately, we run to the 2% case and use that to justify murder for the other 98% of the cases. It's the same thing here. Oh, so you're saying that you know if a woman's husband comes home drunk every night and beats her, that she should submit to him. Oh, you hyper-patriarchal Christians, you're so stupid. That's, that's immediately the reaction. So women will jump to the fringe case in order to justify defiance and disrespect toward their husband. But I would say <laughs> in our culture of masculine men, or I mean masculine women, and emasculated puppy dog men, it's probably more likely that the man is submitting to the wife. But the plot is about to thicken here. And I want you to see something that every modern progressive Christian ignores. Look at that first phrase. In the same way. What is that? What's that doing there? It's almost like Peter was talking about something before this, isn't it? Let's see what he said in chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you are when you sin and are treated harshly, you endure it with patience? Right, you just got what's coming to you at that point. But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God, for you have been called for this purpose. Listen. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This will come up again later. But I want you to see the weight of this phrase. In the same way. So for now, let's keep reading. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are reprobate sinners, even if any of them are unbelievers, okay, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on apparel. You know, so, eternally speaking, those things have almost no value, almost no utility. He says, don't just adorn yourself externally, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable. Imper- you see that word? With the imperishable quality of, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. It has eternal weight. Those other things will burn with fervent heat, but this type of spirit will endure. And it is precious in the sight of God. Just think about that. Humble, peaceable Submissive disposition. What about an angry, backbiting, complaining, argumentative, defiant spirit? What what about that? Has God ever given his approval to that kind of spirit before? Not that I remember. But yeah, gentle and quiet. That's, That's beautiful to God. It's precious in his sight. So in verses 5 and 6, he goes on. He uses Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example. And I'm not going to go over that just for the sake of time, but it's extremely important. But I want you to see that six verses just for wives. He only wrote one to husbands. Why? Why? Why six? I think it's because no matter the time period, whether you're talking about Eve when the world was first created, or you're talking about first century Christians like Peter's talking about, like Paul talked about in other places, or whether you're talking about women in the 21st century, their flesh fights tooth and nail against submission to their husbands. And we see the blight of that all over American culture today to the point where we don't even know what a woman is anymore. God predicted it in Genesis, and here it is. And look, I get it. I get it. There are very few men, if any at all, that are are worthy of your submission. Peter doesn't say anything about worthiness, or you better submit to him because he's smarter than you and better than you. He doesn't say anything like that. In fact, he goes out of his way to say that even if they're unbelievers... It's right for you to do it. You might save his soul. There's so many women talking about trying so hard to have a good marriage, but it's just not worth it because their their deadbeat husband does nothing. Well, may I suggest that maybe you have the wrong motivations. Because having the marriage you've always dreamed of and trying to conform him into your image, that's not the purpose of marriage. That's not the goal. The point is for you to be conformed into Christ's image. And Christ literally loved those who hated Him to the point of death. Even death on a cross. But even if in this life nothing good comes from submitting to your husband, your gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God and He will reward you for it. Remember, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, I have to warn you, this is not a secular mindset. This is not a worldly mindset. You cannot do this in the flesh. This is an otherworldly mindset, a heavenly mindset, an eternal mindset. This will come up again, but I want to get to husbands. Verse 7 I've quoted this so many times to various men, but they just never seem to get it. We we just don't get it. We're a thick bunch. Verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now again, in the same way, in the same way, hmm. So we're still in the context of what he said in chapter 2. So even though he says, fellow heir of the grace of life, I don't think that Peter is only applying this to the husbands of believing wives. For one thing, the phrase doesn't necessarily mean salvation. God breathed life into both Adam and Eve, didn't he? But even if it does mean a believing wife, Peter already gave instructions to a wife concerning an unbelieving husband. I don't think he would just turn around and exempt the husband from his instructions if his wife was an unbeliever. That wouldn't make any sense. So I think the point is, no matter no matter what, you both live by the breath of God. You both live by the power of God, physically. And if and when God saves your wife, or if she's already saved, you or she is saved by the same power of Christ's blood. And there is no male or female in Christ. We'll be like angels in heaven, right? So... The live with your wives in an understanding way, I think, applies in either case. And it's irrelevant what caliber wife you have. You picked her, you vowed to her, you live with her. So, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does it mean? In an understanding way, it could be translated, and is translated in the King James, um, according to knowledge. According to knowledge. Now, I bring that out because I think he's saying that, yes, absolutely, we should understand she's a weaker vessel. Yes, we should understand she's a woman, and it is possible to define that. And we should understand that she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. But also, I think it's important to know your wife. Now, I don't mean know that she likes Mexican pizzas from Taco Bell. Who doesn't? (laughs) I mean that you should have an intimate relationship with your wife. And the only way to cultivate that is by spending time with her, doing things with her, talking to her, starting theological conversations with her. Those are not things that you do, excuse me, Those are not things that you do while dating. And then after you're married, she just becomes the old ball and chain. Find out what makes her happy and do it. Pursue her, love her, cherish her. I can tell you this with just absolute certainty. If husbands cared about their wives as much as we care about ourselves, we would have a lot better marriages a lot better marriages. If husbands made an effort to know their wives intimately and love them as we love ourselves. Now, we're supposed to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But let's just start with loving them as we love ourselves. If you did that, if that were the case, I guarantee you, your wife would be your absolute best friend in the world. And again, you know, think about this in relation to living in harmony with fellow believers, loving them as we love ourselves. If you haven't noticed so far, this is all applicable to relational unity with other believers. I mean, what Peter said to the husband and the wife is applicable here. Remember, Paul in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, he said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. But let's keep going, husbands. So not only must we know her, we must show her honor. Show her honor. Why does it say that? So there's an axiom in Christianity that, you know, however it is in the world, it's probably exactly the opposite in the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you some examples here. The last will be first, and the first will be last. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever ever humbles himself will be exalted. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Do you see a pattern? Why would you honor someone weaker than you? That is not a worldly thing to do. Why would you esteem someone else as better than yourself? That doesn't make any worldly sense. But we do it because that's exactly the example that Christ set. Look at this in Philippians 2. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was what? Also in Christ Jesus. Jesus had this mindset. That's my Jesus. If I, if he had that mindset and lowered himself so far to save me, surely I can set my flesh aside to honor a fellow heir of the grace of life. Surely I can do that since that was Christ's mindset. But here's what usually happens. Most couples have this starry-eyed view of marriage and life, And they think it's going to be endless, selfish bliss. When they get married and realize, hey, wait a minute. You mean I actually have to work at this? I actually have to do something here? I thought I was getting what I wanted. I didn't know I actually had to do things. And so we retreat into selfishness. The wife refuses to submit to her husband. The husband refuses to know and cherish and honor his wife, and the marriage falls into an endless cycle of me, 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 in disobeying God's model for marriage, and marriage falls apart. The relationship falls into disunity, but that's the way it is with any relationship. Now, let's sum this up. says in verse 8, to sum up. See where I got that? Now, again, what does marriage have to do with church unity? Apparently a lot, since he's been talking for seven verses now about marriage, and then he says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. So he says, all of you. What does that mean? There's no one in this room, there's no one in this church building that is exempt from this. Every single person in this room, be harmonious. It literally means to be of one mind, intent on one purpose. But Kevin, what do we do if someone refuses to live harmoniously with us? Remember Euodia and Syntyche? What about that? What are we going to do? That's easy. Look at it. Be sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. See how easy that is? So simple. It's almost deceptively simple. When Christ said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he meant it. But we just, we love to overcomplicate everything. All this modern psychobabble nonsense has just crept into the church and ruined the simplicity of following Christ. It's so simple. Lay yourself aside. See, the problem is we think we deserve something. And we're often told that, we're deserve, that we deserve something you ever heard this? You deserve better than that. Or how about, I wouldn't take that if I were you. We think we're owed respect. We think, how dare someone speak to me that way? My opinion is worth more than someone else's. I could have done a whole lot better than that. You know, if I were in charge, I would have done it this way. Or, or a, literally a million other things that are exactly contrary to sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. What does the Bible say? Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, Paul just straight up says, let's make it a competition. Let's see who can do this better. Let's outdo one another in showing honor. There have been so many times when I've been you know, treated unfairly or reviled, when i had done nothing wrong. And I'm talking about even within the church. And more often than not, the times when I gave a blessing instead of being reviled, it healed that relationship. It reconciled the relationship. I could give you examples, but this is being recorded. So let me let me just read you something from a tiny book. And I, I left it at home or I would show it to you. But this this book entirely changed my Christian life for the better. And it's about a man named R.C. Chapman who lived in the 1800s. He was known even in his day as the apostle of love. For instance, uh, one of Chapman's opponents is recorded telling his followers this, we talk of the heavenlies, but Robert Chapman lives in them. I mean, what a, what a testimony. Spurgeon himself said that Chapman was the saintliest man I ever knew. There's a number of stories I could read you, but I'll I'll keep it to just one. This is from Agape Leadership, and I encourage everybody in this room to get it and read it. It's only about 70 pages. You'll read it within an hour. To be sure, not everyone liked Robert Chapman. One such person, a grocer in Barnstaple, became so upset that Chapman's open-air preaching at Chapman's open-air preaching that he spit on him. For a number of years, the grocer continued to attack and castigate Chapman. Yet Chapman continued on in his ministry, and when the opportunity presented itself, he reached out to bless the grocer. The opportunity arose when one of Chapman's wealthy relatives visited him in Barnstaple. The visit was more than just a social call. The relative wanted to try to understand what Chapman was doing. When he arrived at the house by horse drawn cab, he couldn't believe that the well bred Chapman lived in such a modest home in an impoverished neighborhood. And yet, Chapman warmly invited him into his simple, clean home. As they talked, Chapman explained what it meant to live in dependence on the Lord and show and shared how the Lord always met his needs. As the relative was leaving, he asked if he could buy groceries for Chapman, who gladly agreed. But Chapman insisted that the groceries be purchased at a certain grocer's shop. Yes, the grocer who had so vehemently maligned him. Ignorant of previous interactions between the grocer and Chapman, the relative went where he was directed, He selected and paid for a large amount of food and then told the grocer to deliver it to R.C. Chapman. The stunned grocer told the visitor that he must have come to the wrong shop. But the visitor explained that Chapman had sent him specifically to that shop. Soon the grocer arrived at Chapman's house where he broke down in tears and asked for forgiveness. That very day, the grocer yielded his life to Christ. We can hardly begin to imagine what God will do when his people truly love as Christ loved. Chapman took on the mindset of Christ. While being reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. God is not ignorant of your circumstances. He knows. He knows. Not only does He know what you're going through, but He went through far worse. And He did it for those who hated Him. Can fellow believers not live in unity with one another? But let's take it to another extreme. In Corinth, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there were brothers actually suing each other. I mean, you want to talk about disunity. That's, that's pretty much it. We don't know what all this was about. Uh, it doesn't really matter because Paul thought it was insane. But he said this, 1 Corinthians 6, actually, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. He's saying whether or not you win your case, you've already lost. You've lost because you thought your worldly stuff was more important than upholding the name of Christ. You thought it was worth more than the name of Christ being blasphemed among the pagans. You see how destructive disunity can be and how it can even have an effect in public society. And so he goes on. Look at that. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In the words of Jesus, why not rather turn the other cheek? Why not rather give him your tunic as well? Why not rather go the extra mile? This is not a secular mindset, is it? In fact, this is radically unsecular. The world, so obsessed with itself and its little trinkets, the Christian mindset is obsessed with others and loving them regardless of how they treat us. The world, obsessed with popularity, the Christian mindset is obsessed with anonymity. Listen to what George Whitfield said. Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget about me. If by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. The world is obsessed with retaliation and preemptive attacks. The Christian mindset is obsessed with giving blessing for blows and kindness for criticism. I love Spurgeon who said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are far worse than he thinks you to be. Kempis said it this way, be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be for you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. R.C. Chapman, if I have been injured by another, let me think to myself how much better to be the sufferer than the wrongdoer. Dear friends, you and I simply do not fully understand how destitute, We really are. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you would not? This is the fundamental characteristic of our lives. God gives to you all life and breath and all things. The second you start thinking that you're owed something or anything, you have taken on The mind of Satan. And you've cast off the mind of Christ. You want to know who was owed something? You want to know who was owed absolutely everything? He is that same one who is before all things. And in him, all things consist. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. His name, Christ Jesus. Paul says this in Philippians 2. and I don't have the slide. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We've already read it. But this was Christ's attitude is what he says. Because although he is God, he humbled himself to become a slave and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Absolutely. Nothing but power and glory and set it all aside and died the excruciating death that you should have died, that I should have died. Taking those sins that we've all committed, nailing them to the cross, and you think you're owed something now? Arrogant. fool! You don't know what spirit you're of after being forgiven this immeasurable debt, incomprehensible amount, do you now go to your fellow man and shake them down for 50 cents? It's just unthinkable, but that's what happens when brothers and sisters do not live in harmony. In a state of sympathy, love, compassion, and humility, we're not called to exalt our flesh, we're called to, Die to our flesh. Do what God has commanded in his word. Just do it. Don't worry about getting stepped on. Don't worry about being maligned. I don't care if your wife is a nag. I don't care if your husband is a piece of crap. I don't care if it's a brother or sister in the church, reprobate sinner outside the church. doesn't matter. This life is a vapor. You've got 70 years here. If that. And then you're out of here. Do you have any idea how long eternity is? No, you don't. You can't possibly fathom it. Endure some suffering. Lay yourself aside. It's not going to kill you. And even if it does, you'll find favor with God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And then you'll spend the next gazillion years beholding his glory. Isn't that worth it? For a little suffering in this life? What is church unity? It's not ensuring that everyone is lined up with your way of thinking. It's not communism. Okay, we don't have propaganda machines. When Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another, it's on the screen. When he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. When Peter says to be of one mind, the answers are right there in each of those texts. Do not be haughty. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with what? The lowly. And that's what Christ did, didn't he? Do not be wise in your own estimation. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. All of you, be harmonious, sympathetic. Think about these words. I'm not just reading this to hear myself read it, okay? Think about this. Sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble, not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. If you're inheriting a vast, boundless blessing from the Lord, is it anything for you to give a blessing in this life? Is it anything at all? Church unity can be obtained by simply laying yourself aside, honoring others, that ultimately the name of Christ may be exalted outside the church and inside the church and within your heart as well. So my prayer for this church is that there would always be the spirit of oneness and forgiveness and others-mindedness. It's just as King David said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Let's pray. Father, you are so precious to us, Jesus, so precious to us. Praise you for sending him. We praise you for the example that He set in absolutely every single area. He perfectly modeled what you expect from us. Perfectly. Father, since we have so great an example, oh Lord, would you conform each and every person in this room into His image? Would you use all of our circumstances, whether good or bad, You hear the whole world complaining that there's no way that any good can come from bad. Come from bad circumstances. No way. And yet you work all things out for the good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, that is a promise. So Father, I pray that we would obey you Obey your word, obey your commands, regardless of whether we see the utility in it. Regardless of whether we understand it. Regardless of whether it makes sense or not. Lord, help us to trust you and trust that you know what is best for us. Help us, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.